you can open up real quick, if you would like as well, to the book of Matthew, chapter 21. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, we'll get you a Bible. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew, chapter 21. If you have no idea where Matthew, chapter 21 is, you're more than welcome to go to the index. There's no shame whatsoever in going to that thing called the index. It's totally fine. Find that chapter, and then we'll get to that in just a moment. But uh, we've been going through a series uh, in the book of Ephesians. We finished that up, and what we've been doing over the past several weeks is we've focused on the life of Jesus. And the reason why we've done that is in correlation to this season, this Lent season, to really tune our minds to focus upon the life of Jesus. So the first three weeks, the past three weeks, we focused particularly or primarily on Jesus, his words, we focused on his works, and today we're going to be focusing on his deeds or his actions, stuff that Jesus has done. There are certain actions that Jesus has done. And so today we'll be taking a look at primarily the idea of what's typically called Palm Sunday or otherwise known as the Triumphal Entry, where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This is a very significant event in the life of Jesus. We know it's significant because there are four biographies that we have in our Bibles, we call that the New Testament, that tell us the story of the life of Jesus. We call those four biographies the four Gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And every single one of those four accounts, they don't always tell the exact same uh, stories about the life of Jesus. In other words, John might focus on certain miracles where Luke doesn't really focus on some of those miracles. There are some details that maybe Luke might focus on where Matthew might not focus on some of those details. And there are some events in the life of Jesus that get omitted by some writers and get kind of covered by other writers. But this is one of those events that gets covered by all four of the writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all cover the event of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey. So in other words, what we learn from that immediately from the historical record is that not only, A, is it historical, obviously it happened, but two, it was so essential, so important to the life of Jesus that all four of the writers about Jesus' life felt the need to actually uh, incorporate this into the story of the life of Jesus that they were reporting on. So with that, what I want to do this morning, uh, I want to read out of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll take a look at what... Matthew has to say on this account, again, like I said, we can read through all four of the accounts, but I really just want to focus on what Matthew has to say. We'll make reference to some of the other accounts as well, some of the details uh, that Matthew leaves out, but maybe John might pick up as well. So Matthew chapter chapter 21, verse 1 says this, And when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, a fowl of a beast, a burden." The disciples went and did exactly as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, put on their cloaks, and he, said, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem... The whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet 
from Nazareth of Galilee. God, we ask you right now that you would just help speak your word, which is what this is, to our hearts. God, give us eyes to see. God, if any of us here this morning have um, misunderstandings as to who Jesus is, God, I, I pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus as king. Not just among other hats that Jesus wears, but as the principal reality of who Jesus is, that he is king, not just an advisor, not just a helper, not just a counselor, but in all authority, all kingship has been given to him. So God, help us understand that, help us to wrestle with that if we need to, help us ultimately, God, to submit to that, because that's where we find life. So we just commit this time in your hands, we pray that you would work your work in our lives, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, up until this point, we've been, like I mentioned, looking at the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus. But what I want to look at this morning are really the actions of Jesus. So, Jesus does these actions throughout his life. There are certain times and certain uh, elements in which Jesus, it would seem as if, acts out certain things, certain events that were prophesied from the past. Um, And Jesus sometimes even does new things that were not necessarily prophesied, but then he gives meaning to them. One of those examples would be the partaking of the Last Supper, uh, which really most would agree is probably the Passover. But what Jesus is doing in this action, he's basically uh, reinvigorating it with new meaning, new purpose, new ideas, new concepts that are actually center around himself. So in other words, there are certain actions with, which Jesus does or engages in that have very important meaning attached to them or fixed to them. Um, this is very similar to what all of the ancient prophets or many of the ancient prophets actually had done. One principal example in terms of a prophet that comes to my mind would be Hosea. We've mentioned this before. Hosea is asked by God to go out and marry a prostitute. So some would find this very odd and strange and striking, and all of these things are true. But the reason why Hosea went out and actually did it was one out of obvious obedience to God. But really, um, he was called to love this woman, even though she was a prostitute, even though she was always breaking his heart, always turning her back on him, always running out after other foreign men other than himself. So you'd imagine the repeated pounding emotionally that he would take over and over and over again. And so the question is, why would somebody subject himself to such torment over and over and over again? And the reason would be is that Jose would say, I'm not only doing what God asked me to do, but the reason why I'm doing this particular thing that God has asked me to do is because it is really, for the most part, an action that points to the heart of Yahweh. And Yahweh, God, is basically using Hosea as a model to say, I'm also in a marriage. And the marriage that I'm involved in is to Israel. And Israel is like Hosea's wife. She's a prostitute. She's always going out after other false gods. She's always giving her affections, her heart, her desires away to other entities other than myself. So Hosea becomes sort of this very poignant action, or his life becomes sort of these engaged with these actions that point to greater purposes. And the same thing is with Jesus. Jesus does these actions that point to greater purposes. And we see this in the story that's happening right here, that Jesus engages in this action of riding on the back of a donkey um, into the city of Jerusalem for a specific purpose. 
So there's at least three things that I think about in terms of Jesus' action. So we'll really just take a look at, take a look at two major things here today. One, we'll take a look at Jesus' action. Secondly, we'll take a look at uh, humanity's response or how we should respond. <clears throat> so the first thing we'll take a look at in terms of Jesus' action, three things under this. The first thing we'll take a look at is that Jesus' action reveals to us at least three things among perhaps many other. But these three things I'll focus on. One, it reveals to us that he's in control. The second thing that it reveals to us is that he is actually powerful. And then finally, it reveals to us that he is ultimately peaceful, that Jesus has a peaceful agenda. It's a different agenda than oftentimes other uh, kings that will come into a city, uh, basically coming into the capital city with a particular agenda. Jesus' agenda is radically different. So the first thing we notice is that Jesus is very much so in control. And yet, at the same time, he lives according to God's every word. One of the things that we see about Jesus' life as he enters into the city of Jerusalem on the back of his colt is that he knows everything that's going on. He's very much so in control. And every single gospel account actually tells us a little bit of this backstory. The backstory is Jesus uh, is actually kind of on this area called the Mount of Olives. It's this region that overlooks the entire city of Jerusalem. Um, it's a great vantage point, and we, you kind of start from this region called the Mount of Olives, and you go down into this little valley. Uh, the valley was called the Valley of Kidron, and then through the valley, then you would go into this particular gate. Jesus would have been up on top of this particular area, but every one of the gospel accounts tells us that Jesus actually instructs his disciples to go do something. In this particular account, two of his disciples are, are given this instruction, go into the city of Bethphage, go find a donkey. By the way, it's tied up, and when someone sees you untying this donkey, they're going to ask you, why are you doing this? Then Jesus not only tells them where to go, what to find, what to say, Jesus is totally in control here. He's not out of control. He knows exactly what's happening. And it gets even more interesting because it goes on to say that all of this was done to fulfill what was written by the prophet. And listen to what that states. It says this. It says, so the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the fowl of a beast of a burden. So Jesus sees himself literally in his actions fulfilling the commands of Yahweh, of God. This raises a really important question. What was Jesus' take on the Bible? All right, we looked at this actually a couple weeks ago. Because we live in a day and age that's highly skeptical of the Bible. And yet, there's sort of this weird schizophrenia. Because on the one hand, we have people that are like, I follow Jesus, the Bible, I don't believe. That's strange. It's totally foreign. Because Jesus followed the Bible. Jesus actually said, the Bible, God's word, were like his living bread. He ate, devoured, feasted upon the Bible. And Jesus, we're even told here, organized his life in accordance to it so that it would be fulfilled through him. Jesus literally, even though he was in control of everything, subjected, submitted himself to what God has to say. Even to this point that Jesus, everything into this last point of his life, is living in accordance to God's word. So again, if you have objections with the Bible, my encouragement to you would be to don't stop with those objections. Don't let those doubts dominate your life. Learn to doubt your doubts. Learn to get more information on the scripture. Don't just simply let the skeptics of the Bible dictate and dominate your opinions of the Bible. Find good resources, good scholars, good theologians. They exist. They're out there. Talk to me. I'm happy to help you find them uh, to understand what the scriptures have to say and why they are so important. 
why they're so essential and why they are life-giving. That's what we see with Jesus. So first of all, we see that Jesus is totally in control of everything, yet he lives in accordance to God's every word. The second thing we notice is that he's totally powerful. And yet what we notice about Jesus' power is that it's completely counterintuitive. It's, it's totally opposite of what we'd expect mighty displays of power coming from a king. All right, so if I were to ask you, what would it look like for a king to put on display his power? I don't know why, but for me, I think of Kim Jong-il walking down the middle of this massive, you know, highway with all these insane tanks and, you know, ICBMs and missiles and soldiers marching around. And we would look at that and be like, that's power. He is a powerful king. Not so with Jesus. Now, again, Kim Jong-il is literally just simply following in the footsteps of every great dictator and world leader who wants to put on display his power because Caesar, no doubt, would have been the same. In fact, there's all these stories of Caesar coming into a region that he dominated, that he uh, conquered, that he annexed into his own kingdom, and he would come in on a war horse. Imagine a white stallion that's powerful and it's mighty and it's got armor on it and he'd be surrounded by all of his mighty warriors that might have blood stains on their clothing, whatever. And you would imagine this is a display of power. The idea is nobody messes with the emperor. That's not with Jesus. Jesus comes in with total power, but it's a completely counterintuitive power. It's a power that is, in many ways, it's inverted. It's turned upside down. It's completely opposite of what we would think about power. This is fascinating when you think about the life of Jesus, and in particular, God himself. This is how Jesus puts on display his power. Now, why would Jesus come into a town on a colt, on a donkey? Now, if you think of it this way, a donkey, in fact, even tells us, a donkey was a beast of burden. It was not necessarily the type of animal that would be ridden by a great, mighty, powerful conqueror. It would be ridden by, basically, a worker. So if you were to take and kind of transpose into a modern-day culture, like, uh, uh, I don't know, a a donkey into today's world, uh, a donkey would be similar to, like, a 1967 Ford truck. All right? I mean, it was was nothing more. It was, was, the whole point of it was to simply load it up with, junk. All right, it was, just, it, was, it was to bear burdens, not necessarily to carry mighty, powerful warriors. But Jesus is very specific here because he wants to show, yes, he's a conquering king, but the way he conquers is radically different than the way any other king prior to him has conquered. That this king is a different type of king. This king wields a different type of power because this king wields a power that is unlike any way in which we think about power. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times we live in a culture, we live in a world, we live in a society that does not know how to do and deal with our power because we use what power we have to somehow make ourselves look mighty. It's one of the reasons why maybe a king might come marching into a region with all of this pomp and greatness and tanks and uh, mighty displays of power because underneath all of that is this fear that somehow it's really fragile and it can be lost can be taken away. It's one of the reasons why you and I, on, on an individual level, I think we live in this culture that's so insecure and so needing to be affirmed, and that affirmation oftentimes comes through selfies and things like that that we post online about ourselves because we want so desperately to think that we matter. So we just keep 
posting information about ourselves and photos of ourselves, and we're just focused because we are so fearful that somehow we really don't have the goods, but we want the world to know we do. Not so with Jesus. He takes his power, and he gets on the back of a donkey. This is a power that is simultaneously complemented by meekness. This is unlike any power you've ever seen. This is, this is power and meekness side by side. See, we live in a world in a lot of ways, when we think about someone who's super meek, we think of them as being like really you know, self-deflating and just kind of sad or bummed out. And they're like meek. You know, they're meek. They're, but we don't think of them as being strong and mighty. Uh, this is clear by the statements and the declarations that come from the crowds because all of them shout, they chant this uh, line, this metaphor, and they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, that metaphor is a really important phrase, and I've kind of given examples and analogies of this in the past, but a lot of times there are phrases and ideas and idioms and passages that um, come across to us in the Bible, and we just read them as face value, but we fail to see that underneath that is, is like centuries of emotional um, uh, excitement. In other words, think of it as like a hyperlink. I've said this before. Think of it as a hyperlink. So the phrase, son of David, is actually a hyperlink that any Jew that would have said that, they, in their mind, it was charged with all sorts of other ideas behind it. So there's lots of backstory behind the concept of son of David. The son of David basically comes from the Old Testament. And it was his hope that God would one day raise up a new king, um, like David, under David, the son of David, in other words. That David was really the second king of Israel. He was the best king of Israel. In fact, David sort of marks out as sort of this uh, quintessential example of, of what monarchy could look like within Israel. Now, David wasn't um, you know, a perfect king by no stretch of the imagination. In fact, David's oftentimes known by his greatest defeat as well as his uh, greatest victory, right? Think of his greatest victory, lobbing off the head of Goliath. His greatest defeat is, you know, uh, not only the murder, but also Bathsheba and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, is that David was a really good king. David was a king sort of that all other kings were basically, for the most part, um, judged by. That David cared about Israel. So the hope was that one day God would give Israel, a king from the lineage of David that was like David that would one day put the kingdom of Israel to right. So if you think of it this way, again, we live in a culture that we vote our presidents in and, you know, we're going to obviously in the next year and a half, two years, be having another election and there's all sorts of stuff going on right now, getting ready for that, raising money, getting campaigns launched and so on and so forth. But the point of the matter is, imagine living in a world where you didn't have the choice. Like, like it, was, it, was, it was made for you, and oftentimes it was made even before, you know, um, someone even was of age. So it's like, oh, then we already know who's going to be the next king. It's, it's like my kid. You're like, uh, he's eight months old. Like, I know, he's going to be king. Like, there's no choice. There's no voting. Like, there's no democracy. It's just, it is what it is. But you're like, well, what if that eight-year-old, you know, or eight-month-old kid turns into a complete scoundrel and takes advantage of everything and lives off the entitlements? It doesn't matter. He's going to be the king. And that's oftentimes the way the reality is in much of the world. Now imagine if a king died and there was no hope for another king. Uh, the great fear, the great panic that would basically spread throughout that kingdom would be chaos, pandemonium. Does that make sense? You would have warlords. You would literally have survival of the fittest taking place. You would have powerful warlords and thugs and gangs and rivals 
rise up and whoever had the greatest strength and the most uh, you know, items to be able to fight and combat each other, they would be the ones that would have ultimate power. And that's frightening. Because what if the ones that are going to be in charge uh, have a particular uh, despite towards uh, a person of race that might, you might fit in that category? That would be frightening because if they come to power, you may be in danger of becoming a slave, having your wife raped, having your kids sold off into slavery, or being killed. And so there's always this panic, this fear, this dread whenever a new king would be needing to be raised up. So the hope of Israel was that God would one day raise up a new king, and this king would actually do things not in accordance to injustice, but according to justice. That the orphan, the marginalized, the the widow, the people that would be the most vulnerable in culture and society would actually be given a voice. They would actually be cared for and taken care of, not taken advantage of. So the hope of Israel would be that one day God would raise up this king. They basically give him this phrase, the son of David, that one day God would bring the son of David. So when Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, fulfilling the scriptures, and the people begin to shout, Hosanna, which basically Hosanna means save now, bring deliverance now, son of David. That is a kingly phrase. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. This is really important to enter into the story, to think through this. This, at the same time, you can imagine how threatening this would be to not only the Romans, but also to the other Jews that didn't like Jesus. By this point, Jesus was pulling a lot of people away from the typical Temple Mount, which obviously was pulling money away from the Temple Mount, which was basically interrupting or interfering the temple structure, temple system. But it also was creating threat to uh, the larger Roman region because in and throughout Rome, there was only room for one king. In fact, in every kingdom, you guys get this, there's always only ever room for one king. Do you guys get that? Always. There's never room for two kings on a throne. It's one of the reasons why, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, you know, really the prayer of a Christian is um, not thy kingdom, it's that, you know, God's kingdom come, thy kingdom come, let it come into my life. The idea is that that's what a Christian is, is they want God's kingdom to begin to come and thy kingdom go. In other words, my, or my kingdom go. My kingdom must go, God's kingdom is invited to come, take over my life. Because there's never any room for two kingdoms. So what we see here is this promise that Jesus comes to bring, no doubt, of a king, kingdom, as a king. And yet, again, he's on the back of a donkey. Um, Luke actually gives us this bit of information that Matthew does. And it says that this was an unridden, which means an unbroken donkey. In other words, no one's ever ridden this donkey before, um, which this is kind of shocking. This is an interesting little bit of information because... I don't know much about horses or donkeys or, you know, those types of animals, but I would imagine, if I'm, I'm wrong, please, if you know this type of stuff, please inform me, help me correct uh, my theology on this. But the point of the matter is, I would imagine that a donkey that has never been ridden before, um, ridden for the first time, and not only sim- simply ridden for the first time by a complete stranger, but ridden by a complete stranger in a crowd with perhaps tens of thousands of people chanting and shouting and screaming and throwing things down on the ground, whether it be palm branches or cloaks, that would be a little bit frightening for the animal. But here's what we see, is that animal, that beast of burden, is totally, completely at rest under the authority of King Jesus. 
It's not frightened. It's not freaking out. It's not stressed. It's never been written before. It's completely blowing people's minds because here's this beast of burden completely at rest in the midst of this tumultuous crowd under the reign of Jesus. And I think this is what the important point that the gospel writer, especially Luke, is trying to convey in very subtle terms, that under the reign of Jesus, his aim is to set right that which is broken. In other words, the idea, the concept is peace. Jesus has come to bring peace. He's not come to shed blood. He's come to have his blood shed. He's not come to oppress the way oftentimes other world rulers and tyrants come, but he's come to be oppressed, to relieve those that are under the oppression of sin, death, destruction. This is what we see that Jesus has come to bring. But Jesus' peace is not just simply a sentimental peace. It's not just simply one that we would just look at and be like, oh, isn't it wonderful Jesus comes to give me nice, peaceful feelings. It's a peace that actually comes on the heels of confrontation. Because in the story, which I didn't read, in the rest of the story in Matthew's account of chapter 21, it goes on in verse 12 down to about verse 17. It says, and immediately Jesus actually entered in the temple. And there on the temple mount, Jesus then begins to basically, for the most part, rearrange the furniture. He overthrows the temples. He completely throws other people out. And then he shouts out and he's like, look, my house is a house of prayer. And you guys have completely turned it into a den of thieves or a den of brigands. Trying to usurp God's purposes. And obviously it goes on to say, and I'll just read this little line right here because it's part of the story that's kind of important. It says... Uh, in the latter part, around verse 14, it says, And the blind and the lame came to him. This is amazing. I mean, I would imagine Jesus overturning tables, and a blind guy comes up to him and is like, Jesus, can you heal me? And he's like, yeah, let me heal you. And they go back to turning over tables right now. Um, someone else comes up. They're like, Jesus, I can't walk. I got cerebral palsy. And Jesus is like, all right, let me heal you. And Jesus is like, okay, I'm going to go back and overthrow some more tables. And Jesus is like doing this. He's healing people. And at the same time, completely rearranging the entire layout of the temple. And it goes on to say in verse 15, it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, son of David, it says that the religious leaders, and they were indignant. Their heart, their attitudes were so hardened to God, to Jesus, that they wanted to put him to death. This was their immediate reaction. So on the one hand, you have this unbelievable freedom and elation and excitement and celebration because people are literally having their eyes being opened, their ability to be able to hear given back to them, their ability to walk again, which was lost. Their lives are being changed while at the same time others are filled with indignation. Because what Jesus does when he comes and brings his kingdom, even though it's peaceful, it's very confrontational. Jesus confronts the structures that actually lead towards death and destruction, a.k.a. sin. He has to. He has to address these things. He has to tear them, tear them down. He has to confront them. See, this is one of the things that's very troubling about Jesus. And it should trouble you if that you, in any way, shape, or form, decide to follow Jesus. You've got to know this about Jesus. He will not let you remain and stay in things, doing things in your life that will be destructive to you, otherwise known as sin. He has to confront these things. Those things must come down. Because they're destroying you. And if Jesus' aim is to bring peace, shalom, where things are put back to order, he has to address those things that are destructive to order, that are in opposition to order, 
He's a God of creation. He must tear down the forces of anti-creation. And this is what he does. This is one of the reasons why Jesus, if you've ever tried to follow him, it's very challenging at times. But what you need to understand is it's always motivated by love. Tim Keller, great pastor, says it kind of like this. The reason why God deals with these things like this is because his ultimate aim is one day he will come back in this world. And he will do so in such a way that he, he wants to end evil without ending you. See, if we are so united with the evil and the wickedness and the rebellion and the brokenness in our own heart, unless we are separated from that brokenness, the sin, the root cause of that, then when God ends and destroys and crushes evil, if we are united with that, then we will end and be crushed with it. Because he loves us, he wants to separate us. It's like having a cancerous tumor in your body. It's like there's no doubt you'd want to get that thing removed if it's at all possible. Because you know the consequences of not removing that cancerous tumor would be spread. And as it spreads, it causes the rest of your life to enter into a state of decay, ultimately death. And this is what sin is. It's a cancer that will decay and destroy and ruin and ultimately end us unless it's intervened. And this is what Jesus does. He comes, he confronts with the aim, with the focus on rescuing. There's this line from the Lord of the Rings that goes something like this. It's a reference to looking forward to this King Aragon, if you're familiar with the story, it says this, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. I love that because that is such a beautiful picture of Christ, that this is who Jesus is. He's the hands of the king. The hands of the king are hands of healing. Jesus comes with healing hands. So some of the feeling that you might be going through in your life where you feel as if your life is being appended and turned upside down and tossed into the storm may simply be the hands of the healer trying to move cancerous tumors from your life. You see, the thing is, and this is where we finish, the thing is, is that we have to respond. We have to think about how we respond accordingly and rightly. And this is where I want to close. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus always elicits a response. Listen to what uh, it says in Matthew chapter 21, and around verse 10 it says this. It says, and when, the, when he entered the city, or when he entered into Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? So that little phrase, just think about that. The whole city is literally considering and pondering and, and trying to figure out who is this? He comes into the city. He's on the back of a donkey. He's not on a white stallion. He's not on a war horse. He's not like any other king that we would have ever expected or anticipated. But who is this? People are shouting, son of David. So there's already this expectation that he's a king. He's blowing people's minds, in other words, because he's not fitting in any way, shape, or form the expectations culturally around what a king looks like. So they're like, who is this? And this is where some, as I already alluded to, the religious leaders are full of indignation. They want to see him killed. Now think about it. This is the right response to those that feel as if their autonomy is threatened. Let me give an example. All right, if I were to come over to your house, 
And I would be like, hey, can I come on in? And you might be like, okay, that's kind of forthright, but sure, yeah, whatever. Um, can I get you some water? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, you go into the kitchen, you go get me some water, and while you're in the kitchen, get me some water. I'm like, I take it upon myself, and I start, like, rearranging the furniture. Not just in the living room, but I also go into your bedroom, and, like, flipping through stuff, and I'm, like, shift, shifting up your bedroom and putting over here, and you're uh, just shifting everything, moving it around. You would come out, and you would be filled with indignation. Because I have no right to do that. It's not my place. I don't own that house. I have no right to what, whatsoever to come over to your house and begin to usurp your authority and begin to build out mine. So your indignation would be correct. The same thing was going on with these guys. Jesus comes in and begins to rearrange the furniture in the temple. And they are filled with indignation. Because if we think that we are in control of our lives... And one like Jesus comes in and begins to usurp our control and begins to rearrange things in our lives. We will either be filled with rage and indignation and frustration, or we will shout, Hosanna, save now. Look, let me put it this way. If you think of Jesus as nothing more than a life coach, if Jesus is nothing more to you than just uh, a, a, a teacher who gives nice cliche statements that you can, you know, put on a coffee mug or wear on a T-shirt, and if that's all you think of Jesus, then you can take or leave the things that he says. Let me give you another example. If you think of Jesus as nothing more than a, an accessory to your life, like a watch you put on when it's convenient, you take off when it's inconvenient. If you think of Jesus as like an accessory, then you would put him on when you go to church, because of course everybody puts Jesus on when you go to church, because like you want to look Jesus-y, and are you going to hang out with your family, you know they're Christians, you get a Bible study, you're going to put on your little Jesus accessory, because you want to look associated somehow, some way with Jesus. But if you're going to go hang out with your girlfriend, have sex with her, you're going to go download porn, you're going to go do stuff that are kind of messed up and broken, and part of the brokenness in this world, you take Jesus off, because he's not convenient. The moment Jesus begins to confront us on that, we will either become indignant or we will cast the very belongings we have on our bodies down before him and say, Lord, have it all. I hold nothing back from you, the king. Look, let me put it this way, one more final way of thinking about this. If Jesus is just an advisor and just an advice giver, and that's all he is to us, then we have the ability to simply take the elements of what Jesus has to say that really resonate with us and harmonize with our heart, make us feel really good about ourselves or feel really good about life, and we can take those things, imbibe them, write them down, put them even in our journal, and the other things that seem antiquated or the other things that seem a little bit messed up, countercultural, that seem to you know, bring the ire and the frustration of the culture upon the whole Jesus thing, then we can, we can dismiss those things and eliminate those things and just move away and be like, ah, you know, the Bible, it's whatever. You know, I, I, I follow Jesus. I don't really care about the Bible. Then we can, we can conveniently do that. But if Jesus is king, you can't do that with a king. You can't do that with a king. Remember, you can't have two kings on a throne. One that stands before a king and says, no, sir, no king, is not subject to that king. Is still trying to exercise and maintain and live off of their own authority and supremacy. 
So something's got to go. Either Jesus goes off into the path of death. This is what the religious leaders hoped for. Jesus had a trick of a sleeve. We'll get to that next Sunday. Or, one of you got that. Or, you have to submit to him. You have to surrender your heart to him and say, Lord, save now. Whatever it is. And that means all of our lives. That means that Jesus has something to say about every part of our lives. It's not just our finances that Jesus has stuff to say about. It's not just our eternity that Jesus has stuff to say about. It's about our interpersonal relationships. It's about how we identify as sexual beings. Jesus has things to say about that. Jesus has something to say to us about everything, the sum total of who we are. And if he's just an advisor, we can take and leave some things that we don't like. But if he's king, that kingship means either life for those who trust, obey, and submit, or it means destruction, frustration, anger, angst. And that's where some of you are at right now. Maybe there's just constant angst and frustration and turmoil in your heart. Perhaps, maybe if you trace it all the way upstream, it may have something to do with the fact that Jesus has come into your life and he's like, I want to rearrange furniture here. I want to get rid of this and these little areas and this little drawer. It's like, it's bothering me because it's actually the source of corruption and corrupt ideas and thoughts and concepts in your mind. And I'm going to remove that. And you're like, no. And Jesus is like, you you don't get it. You don't. You don't get it yet. I'm not an advisor. I'm not a life coach. I'm king. So I want to respond. I want to invite you to respond appropriately to Jesus. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. We have communion in the back. It's a way for us to remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us and the price that he paid uh, that he was broken. We, we say this every week. We, we eat broken bread. And the idea behind broken bread is, is that Jesus takes his bread that was once whole, his big wafer, and he breaks it and he says, this is my body. In other words, my body, which is whole, which has been nothing but whole throughout all eternity, will be broken for you so that you who have nothing can be given life and fed. Um, the cup we drink as a way of reminding ourselves that the price that Jesus paid for us. In other words, he himself didn't come to shed blood of his enemies. This is the really good news. He came to have his blood shed for his enemies. And what this means is that you and I, we don't, we don't deserve this kindness of God. That Jesus has come to do something for us that we simply don't deserve. He is a different type of king, wielding a different type of power because it's motivated by a different type of love that you and I, frankly, find very discomforting because we don't find it in this world. We want to be loved by somebody in this world, but at the same time, we try to maintain this life of being in these sort of quasi-relationships whereby we convince ourselves we're loved, but we're never really fully known. But what the gospel does is it basically says there's a way to be loved and fully known. This is what Jesus invites you be part of, to be fully known, to lay your life down, to come to him. That's what I want to invite you to. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to think about Jesus and surrender to him. Think about where you are with him. Wrestle with the claims of Jesus. 
got bigger questions in your mind about that, we'd love to help equip you with answers. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, and maybe Jesus has been this prophet that's been filled with all these great, nice cliches and concepts, and, but they've never really fully moved you, I want to invite you to be moved by those claims to the point of understanding why Jesus said the things that he did, why Jesus did the things he did, why Jesus acted out the way that Jesus acted out, because of his love for you. That's what I want to invite you to. So why don't we all stand? Let's all stand. And when we sing, I want us to think about something. In the passage, it actually says that the people around Jesus, they had these like little palm branches. That's what I had in my hand. Uh, these palm branches basically was a, probably a reference to an Old Testament passage um, that describes and the trees of the field will clap their hands and maybe it was a way by which they were saying they would take these things and put them on the ground and it says that they would take their cloak and they threw it on the ground. And now if you think of it this way, you know, a lot of us, we, we own maybe 10, 15 jackets or shirts or whatever. Um, people back in that day, um, oftentimes they wore everything that they owned. And so for them to be able to take a jacket or a cloak or a shirt off their back and lay it on the ground was basically giving everything to Jesus saying, this is yours, it's all yours. And and then they began to shout. So they shouted with loud voices to God, Hosanna in the highest. Now, I realize this is one of the areas in which we can grow and learn and, as a church. Um, I went to Mexico this past week, or actually last week. Um, that's where I was at last Sunday. And I was amazed because um, in, in, in Mexico, it was, it was so awesome being a part of this church that people just shouted. I mean, they were just so filled with enthusiasm and shouting and celebration. And, and it's okay. I just want to give you the permission. It's okay to shout. It's totally okay to clap. It's okay to be excited for Jesus. Because look, at the end of the day, if we kind of cultivate the sort of like hipster slash I'm cool mentality, like I don't get too excited. We know that's not entirely the true story because we do get excited about things that we're really excited about, whether it be a good football game or a, a band that we're really passionate about or something else that's for the most part is usually almost always entirely lesser than King Jesus. And if Jesus is the king that has come to set our world and our lives right, by confronting the powers of anti-creation, of destruction, of hell, of sin, of death, and if he's done that in your life, that is something worth shouting for. That is something worth celebrating in our God over. You guys agree with that? Yes, it's okay. It's okay to clap. So I want to I sing, and we have communion in the back, and let's just respond right now. Sound good? Let's do it.